Just two days after the IPPC called climate change a code red for humanity, Europe has recorded as, if confirmed, its highest ever temperature. Emissions of greenhouse gases need to peak within the next three years if we're to stave off the worst effects of climate change. It is a file of shame, cataloguing the empty pledges that put us firmly on track towards an unlivable world. Well, in cities around the world, activists are rallying for action on climate change. Tens of thousands filled the streets of cities like Melbourne, Rio de Janeiro, Berlin and Paris. This is an emergency. People are already suffering and dying from the consequences of the climate and environmental emergency. Climate is the great unifier for a lot of social justice movements. Climate justice is also racial justice, it is also gender justice, it's immigrant rights. It's all of these things intersect around the moves that we make next around climate. Welcome back, listeners. This is your host, Adia Khan, in the studio. Climate change is a man-made problem with a feminist solution. This is the tagline of the podcast, Mothers of Invention. Meet the women who are changing the way we do things. Litigation creates a narrative that's powerful around climate change. We went to New York City, shut down five different banks in one day. I am the woman who banned single-use plastic bags in Kenya. In unexpected, totally genius ways. Climate solutions calls for a change of consciousness. The work is being done by women of color because our lives depend on it. I find it unbelievable that you find people like me. I just want to make sure that I'm on the right side of the revolution when it comes. Today we are tackling the big elephant in the room, climate change, and thinking through how specific communities like BIPOC women are both at the front lines of climate solutions, and yet these marginalized groups are also the very ones historically oppressed and more at risk of climate-related impacts. The fight for climate justice is more than multi-pronged. It requires an inward and outward cultural shift. I'm talking about regenerative compassion for others and immense self-care in the face of this intimidating issue. And Timali Kodikara is going to help us. Timali is the series producer of Mothers of Invention, which is hosted by former Irish president Mary Robinson and comedian writer Maeve Higgins. Their platform uncovers stories of climate justice heroes giving focus to black, brown and indigenous women who are holding up the microphone to climate action in the boardroom, at marches, with their peers and beyond. Beyond her work in the podcast world and more currently, the Mali advises on climate strategies and also is a recognized public figure for climate advocacy. She has consulted global and regional organizations like Human Rights Watch and BAFTA on how to adopt intersectional feminist principles in their climate policies. She's full of sage but incredibly personable and funny too. One thing I took away from this conversation is that fighting climate change is a marathon and it can be rife with anxiety. However heavy the matter is, though, we deserve moments of brevity and silliness. Thank you, Thamali, for showing me and our listeners that. 
So let's get started. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, it's my pleasure, Sadia. For our listeners, you are in a lot of pain, and I feel <laughs> terrible that I dragged you here, but I had to. <laughs> I I fully am fully willing to be dragged for this for this podcast appearance on Immigrantly. I'm so happy to be here with you. So today we are going to talk about climate disaster catastrophe that's happening right now and you and i are going to solve this issue in an hour yeah absolutely how does that easily sound easily done so easily done right? one hour is all it yeah absolutely but here's the thing your accent your british accent will soften the blow <laughs> for white folks what do you think it's my um it's my secret superpower it's like i'm <laughs> waving waving my british accent in front of people's faces so they <laughs> They think that nice things are happening but actually I'm like going in for the kill. So, but it is working so far. I wish my accent was as revered and as coveted as this Ugh. one, right? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you a story about that actually is that um at the age of 4 years old, I think I was 4, huh. um my parents marched me, my sister and my brother off to elocution lessons. Where yeah, so at four years old, and I was in elocution lessons at Miss Wise's house every Friday night <laughs> after school from the age of four until I was eighteen. No joke. And so I was learning to pronounce my words clearly and properly with the utmost attention to my vocabulary, and I would talk like this. And I hated all of the friends that I was making because I was sounding so annoying and posh. Um, <laughs> but eventually, uh, you know, I made it to the East End uh, whilst I was at art school in London, and then it was like, all right, girls, let's go down the pub and have a couple. And <laughs> <laughs> and I said no of a sudden I did have friends that I really enjoyed the company of so um but it worked you know I hate to say it my parents uh did it on purpose they were both immigrants uh to the UK in the 1960s late mm. 1960s and I think they knew that this would be a superpower this accent yeah. you know and uh both my siblings have got great jobs and great access to opportunity I literally, you know, co-host a podcast now too, so it worked out for me as well, but um part of the work I'm trying to do is is creating access for people that don't have lovely southwest london accents. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about your work Timali. Now before we delve into it, I just want to set the stage and understand where in the climate change equation you are inhabiting space what does that work entail so i am the series producer and co-host now of a podcast on feminist solutions to the climate crisis and i actually co-host the show with a comedian a brilliant hilarious comedian called Maeve Higgins mm. who is an avid podcaster also as well as the former president of Ireland uh, <laughs> Mary Robinson so my sweary london rants um i have to sort of put them aside 
to to hang out with with Mary. Uh, but they're both absolutely um, amazing, brilliant women who have taught me so much. I joined the show as the producer in season two, and I mm. actually was given the show by the creators when there were really enormous climate issues that were sort of kicking mm. off in 2019. But I truthfully didn't really know anything about climate. I mean, I knew mm. about the climate uh, Paris Accord and, you know, all sort of the big ticket key issues. But honestly, I just thought that climate was a white folks issue. That is how it was being presented in the media, something that will happen in the future. But actually, I'd a couple of years earlier bumped into a friend who was also Sri Lankan like me. And she was in the immigration movement in New mm. York City, which is where I live too. Um, and she quit her job to work in climate. And mm. we were all like, what are you doing? Climate is a white people's issue. <laughs> this is crazy. What are you talking about? And she was like, no, no, no. I swear these things are all connected. Yeah. And I was like, okay, whatever. Put it aside. But always really respected her work. And that was what I was thinking about when I was invited to to take on the show. And kept sort of kept aware of where those clues would be in the work. And then actually it was pretty quickly, pretty early on, Mary... Robinson and I were having a chat after the first episode record, I think. And she, I said to her, you know, I feel like people are using the terms environmental justice and climate justice interchangeably. Do you do that? Yeah. And she said, well, no, because climate specifically refers to the existential crisis on planet Earth. And that sort of connected a lot. I mean, it was like an instant switch went off in my brain. And when I thought about all the systemic issues that were mm. happening in the environmental justice world, it was 10, 20, 100-fold in the climate world, and it was Global South folks. And then I started thinking about, wow, like, my aunt was killed in the tsunami in 2003. And, uh, mm. you know, I still have lots of relatives in Sri Lanka who, you know, said photos of themselves wading through floods. And mm. then I was like, oh, right. And then, you know, this friend who comes from this country and this friend whose parents still live there. And it was all of a sudden I was like, oh, my God, climate is a black and brown and indigenous people's issue. First mm. and foremost, how is it not being told? How is this story not being told in this way? Mm. And then um, I immediately sort of felt like I knew what I wanted and needed to do. And uh, I'm very lucky that Mary and Maeve and our executive producers are very supportive of my thinking, my ideas. And effectively, audiences are listening to me learning about climate on the fly, you I know, it's it. sort of unfolding. You know, they're, they're sort of watching it unfold in my mind. But, you know, what is amazing about the show also is that it's not just a straight information share. Like, it's, right. it's a social justice impact media project, quite quite a mouthful, but it means that we're not just handing over a bunch of info to people. We're actually trying to find ways for the audience to sort of get their butts off seats and go do something. And on the back end, we're finding ways for our guests on the show who are actively trying to do this work um, to, to support them too. And they are mostly black and brown and indigenous mm. women, girls, gender non-conforming folks um, and their allies. We've had like five men on the show. That's, that's, <laughs> but you have to be a really high calibre if you're going to be on the show. Tamali, there's so much to unpack yeah. in what you just said. First, feminist solutions to climate change. What does that mean? 
So that's the first thing that I want you to expand on. And then we'll also get to why black, brown, indigenous folks normally think that climate change is white person's issues, while climate change is disproportionately impacting black, brown, and indigenous communities. So where is the disconnect? Why this dichotomy? What are we missing? So let's start with the feminist part, which I'm really interested in. Yeah, I feel like you probably already know the answer to this question too. If you look at a massive crisis like COVID, Mm. um, it really was women's leadership in particular that really, um, you know, took hold of the reins and got a lot of stuff done from go. And a lot of the reason that tends to be is because women and femmes will tend Mm. to look at uh, society or their community holistically. They're looking at every single person within the network, not just one powerful aspect of it, right? They're definitely not trying to, you know, uh, dominate over uh, the community either. Mm. Um, I always say, of all the awful things that have happened on planet Earth in the last, like, five, ten years, like, give me a list of ten women that caused any of these problems for us, you know? (laughs) Turn on the telly any point in the history and it's just a lot of dudes breaking things. So women do have a tendency and and femmes as I said Mm. um, have a tendency to look at at everybody in the picture so the the flip side of that is that in a climate context uh, black and brown and indigenous women girls um, do tend to be the most deeply affected Um, to give an example we've had a guest on the show called Hindu Umaru Ibrahim who is Mm. a wonderful woman a nomadic indigenous woman from Chad And she tells us stories about how, you know, in her community next to Lake Chad, uh, who've been very dependent on Lake Chad, an enormous lake, but actually 90% of it has dried up due to climate change. 90%. That's due to high temperatures. So Mm. aside from dealing with these extremely high temperatures, they're dealing with, you know, lack of access to food now as they can't grow anything in that kind of heat. You know, new diseases. Mm. Um, they're having to look after usually quite large families who are there to sort of help with the with farming or for maintaining the household, um, because you know agriculture is a part of their lifestyle. Men, of, you know, the husbands are not able to grow anything in those regions right. anymore, so they have to leave, and they too have to. You know, they're at a loss for their own culture, right? They have mm. to go to cities do very sort of culturally disorientating new, Mm. you know, jobs to bring money back home. But in that time, it's still the women who are left behind in those communities trying to problem solve and adapt to Mm. these kinds of new extremes. And, you know, then you've got other, you know, more simple, less obvious things like women who are in saris or big traditional clothing that can't run during times of disaster. Like... Things like that we don't really think about because we don't have that cultural context always, but are really hugely important all the same. But do you think solutions that people present, whether at conferences or in other settings, are more whitewashed or catered to a specific population? 
because the kind of things that you're talking about a lot of people wouldn't even know especially decision makers so how do we bridge that gap also a great question i mean we're kind of stuck in this mess because our political leaders our business leaders media and not having this conversation or not having the conversation deeply enough or not having a conversation fast enough mm. um there are in the meanwhile people who are really doing that work and again that's sort of who we're trying to feature on the show people who are thinking about the problem holistically right and not in this sort of piecemeal way i did actually attend cop26 which is this huge global you know un conference that happens every year which was not on during the pandemic but cop26 which happened in glasgow in november was the first time in a while that people've been able to congregate around this and you know it's it is a very dry and frustrating <laughs> experience in many ways there is what's happening inside of the negotiations and i i have lots of colleagues and community who were in the rooms and would leave like you know Infuri- yeah, completely yeah. infuriated. But then simultaneously, what was beautiful, which I didn't actually know existed until I got there, was the People's Summit, which was a week long of events, talks, conversations yeah. that was happening, that was hosted by various BIPOC indigenous folks from all over the world who sat in church halls and little art galleries and all over Glasgow, far from the negotiations were happening, to problem solve these issues. And I was like, oh my God, this is it. This is where all of the real work is happening right now. When we think of COP26, mm-hmm. it's been 26 years. Longer. Yeah. Longer, right? We haven't really achieved much. Am I being too skeptical here? Am I missing something? I mean, you're not wrong, right? Hmm. We've got nine years to go. We're way off you know, enormous targets in terms of hmm. carbon, in terms of money, you know, being directed to the right people in the right places, like way, way, way off. I've been doing this work now for about four years and I still actually can't believe how little most people know about it and I think a lot of that is around the fear and anxiety like they know I think most people know it's bad that sort of brings on this petrifying fear or there's the other end of the spectrum which is like there's nothing we can do about it anyway Mm. which obviously Mm. comes from an incredibly privileged position or feeling of helplessness too right right sometimes that can happen right but when do you think And not when. How do you think we can move from that place of helplessness or focusing too much on personal virtue of, say, recycling, which in some instances wouldn't work, like plastic recycling doesn't work. Metal paper, yes, but plastic doesn't, right? To collective accountability, which also includes accountability of corporations and making them less harmful probably because obviously we can't escape the system completely, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's an awful statistic for you, which is that only 9% of recycling actually is recycled in the world. A lot of that is actually just shipped off to where, obviously, black and brown countries, uh, mm. and it's burnt there, so the emissions are there, basically. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. So, um, yeah, recycling is uh, really rubbish, <laughs> pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> I think I collective action is absolutely where it's at. Like, mm. we can't keep putting blame on individuals for, right. you know, not not getting things right. It's and making not... them feel like shit. Exactly. If I don't recycle things... I feel so bad and I'm not saying that I shouldn't play a role in this but there are bigger problems that we need to address which we are not addressing. Absolutely and they are all huge systemic issues mm. and I too felt that moment of helplessness too just like it's enormous it's absolutely enormous but two things I would say there is the moment that everything really clicked into place for me, I realized, oh, my God, like climate is the great unifier for a lot of social justice movements, actually. Like mm. climate justice is also racial justice. It is also gender justice. It's immigrant rights. It's all of these things intersect around the moves that we make next around climate. You know, if we are considering the whole of society mm. then you know this climate justice is a way to really create new opportunities create opportunities for women for immigrants for people of color but say for immigration for example right climate is going to create around their estimations between 800 million to 1.3 billion migrants across the world before the end of the century that is an enormous, enormous number. Mm. We think of immigration as just being like folks trekking it over borders. Again, it's a systemic issue. Yeah. If we can deal with our climate issues, we can allow people to stay at home, in, which is where they want to be, right? They want to be in their home countries. Um, so it's an opportunity to kill many birds with one stone. But then, you know, in terms of the feeling of helplessness that you mentioned. Mm. To me, from everything that I've seen and the incredibly diverse community of people that I've spoken to over the years, the answer is organizing with your communities. And I sort of have always sort of contracted thinking about this because I am not necessarily a part of any community organizing. Like I am quite actively a part of immigrant rights movements and, and racial justice movements and things like that within Brooklyn, which is where I live. But actually getting together with your friends right. and realizing that you actually do have power. There have been some amazing moves made all over the world, people taking their governments to court, stopping pipelines. Mm. Like that is not being led by business leaders or politicians right. or even the media. It's regular people like you and me who get together with a bunch of pals and say we don't we don't want this for ourselves mm. and we're going to try because what other option is there um complacency is not going to get us anywhere and you know to use an example like Greta Thunberg who joined the climate movement or created this modern <laughs> climate movement with various other young people around the world she talks a lot about how depressed she was and yeah. there is a lot the climate anxiety is a real thing she wasn't eating you know she was having real difficulty making friends and things like that but slowly through building community mm. 
all over the world she you know ha- has a boyfriend i've heard <laughs> and you know you know is able to eat diverse foods again and all that sort of thing so i'm yeah absolutely i can see it i see the power of getting together with your friends and getting involved so that is something that i am sort of making my way to really commit to myself If you're here, I know you're really interested in change, so I am excited to tell you about Undistracted, a weekly podcast from my friends at Meteor, hosted by activist and educator Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Every week, Brittany takes a very personal look at the news from an intersectional feminist viewpoint, which you know I like. Brittany talks to each week's newsmakers about the change they strive for every day. So you'll hear from folks like Anita Hill, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Congresswoman Cori Bush, Tracy Ellis Ross, Tarana Burke, and more. Plus, she'll catch you up on the latest untrending news. Stuff you might have missed that you definitely need to know. Undistracted comes out weekly on Thursdays. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pandora, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or Odyssey. And you can find The Meteor at The Meteor on Instagram. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 by Athletic Greens because I wanted better gut health and wanted a supplement that actually tastes great and also wanted to see what the hype was all about. Now I have been on it for a few weeks and I love it. Fun fact, it doesn't taste like it's super healthy. It has a kind of mild tropical taste and I actually look forward to it each morning. With just one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's how I take it. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash emerging. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. What are the most pressing institutions or industries that need further accountability, right? So who are we not calling out enough? And what solutions do you have in mind for that? I mean, quite obviously, the fossil fuel industry, that's a no brainer. But, um, you know, the the people who have who can have the most impact over fossil fuel industries are our elected leaders. Mm. So if we're not, you know, doing our research, if we're not showing up and even voting, let alone voting for the right folks, um, what options do we have? That's an incredibly mm. powerful tool. You know, I'm going to add to that, though, um, running for office. Why not? Mm. 
why not run for office in your community? That is also an incredible way to hold people accountable. But where do you start when you think of running for office? Even I've thought about this a few times, but then I'm like, nobody knows me. I am Muslim woman, immigrant. Who would vote for me? You know, that's, that's a lot of folks in the right. House and Senate right now, right? AOC yeah. was a, a bartender, you know? <laughs> It's regular people who can speak on behalf of their communities that we really need, right? That's what we really need. People who, again, women and femmes who are able to see the whole picture, hmm. who are willing and excited to provide for everybody in the room, not just a few. So why not? Why not hmm. you? Why hmm. not me? You know? Hmm. Oh, God, why not me? Yeah, why not you? <laughs> I just put myself, on the line. put myself on the line. <laughs> When we think of climate crisis and what's happening, especially when we think of fossil fuel industry, most of these organizations have known for a long time the disastrous impact of climate change, right? They've known it for maybe 20, 30, even 40 years. And nothing much has happened since then because all of these corporations are for profit. So they are more concerned about the bottom line, how much profit they make, and how they can maximize profit, which makes sense in terms of who they are, right? They are right. for profit organizations. Right. We can't expect them not to focus on that. How do we build coalitions in a way which sounds or may seem mutually beneficial to them, can we co-opt them? Or do you think we need to over-regulate or regulate the shit out of them? What are your thoughts? Time to go. <laughs> <laughs> Time to go. Well, there is no room, no room whatsoever for fossil fuel industries. None whatsoever. We don't need mm. it. We literally don't need it. We could be redirecting all of that energy, uh, well, double pun in one podcast, um, into, <laughs> into uh, you know, green, green energy development. There's absolutely no reason. Why, I mean, we're, we're looking at wars evolving right now. People, my family are in Sri Lanka, they're having a gas crisis right, right. now. Like, the, we don't need to be in this position anymore. Like, this is the work that we're all trying to do. Why do you think we are in this position? What's stopping us from completely just destroying this industry? They're enormous and they're extremely powerful. But they are also flailing right now because they know they have felt the pressure that we have put on them. Hmm. We've done that work. And now the, the sort of current danger that's unfolding is greenwashing. Maybe you've heard the term. No, I would love so, to know what it means. Yeah, I mean, we're in Pride Month right now. There's pride washing, right? You see, like, corporations yeah. who are absorbing, um, you know, who are trying to uh, co-opt justice movements to sell more stuff. The fossil fuel industry and peripheral industries are trying to do the same thing they're trying to present themselves as like oh we're net zero this we're and and they're not and they're not yeah. and it's very hard for regular consumers to be able to see that that's what's going on but that's why it's important for us to find the right outlets to get educated on this stuff 
you've probably had so many conversations around climate change, climate action. You've met so many folks. Was there a story or an example which really struck you, which really shocked you, made you rethink everything that you were doing? Mm. I mean, I'm very privileged to be around some incredibly powerful women climate leaders around the world. And, you know, we get to hear the personal story that triggered Mm. their work. But, you know, I the first person that comes to mind as you're speaking is a woman called Ursula Rakova, who is an indigenous woman from a matriarchal society in a Polynesian island called the Kartra Islands, which are just off the coast of Papua New Guinea. Mm. And the islands are about to disappear under the water forever. And that is the land where the bones of her ancestors are buried, right? And that's, again, it's not a when we talk about and listen to you know these folks who are really existing through their culture in a very very deep and meaningful way something like that really really matters Mm. it really really matters that's the source of their spirituality you know as well as the source of their food and their homes and Mm. places that they're raising their children but she is working to migrate her entire community to a larger, more secure island. So she's working to secure land plots for individual families and trying to get everybody over. But, you know, what is heartbreaking is that so many people are not willing to leave. Again, it's like the Mm. cultural perspective. They're not willing to leave and they're they're willing to just Stay stay there and no matter what. And... You know, we brought Ursula's story onto the show as a climate solution, but really we still, I think, in the global north think that mitigation strategies are limitless. Mitigation meaning Mm. we can completely eliminate all of our climate problems and just get back to work. But there are so many people around the world who who have zero mitigation options, Mm. and now it's about adaptation. And... That is that is really, really, really hard to hear. That was really hard to hear. Listening to the story of Ariel Deranger in Alberta, in northern Canada, which is where the tar sands are. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of tar sands, but it's absolutely violent what happens to the land. It's people searching for oil who will dig, you know, instead of digging deep under the ground, they sort of, well, I think they do deep, dig deep into the ground, but they allow the oil to seep up onto the surface mm. of the land, which destroys absolutely yeah. everything, absolutely everything, and it will never come back. But her family are also indigenous, and she remembers, you know, camping on that land with her parents, and she does, you know, gives this beautiful description of birds and bees and butterflies and smells and just green everything and then returning there 10 years later and driving up over a small hill and just the sounds of, you know, cranes and beeping of trucks and the smell and the the death, you know, because mm. from an indigenous perspective, the birds and the beads and the butterflies are her ancestors too, you know, that's hey. her family, that's how that's her perspective and so it's you know it's sort of a, become a graveyard for her her family members 
I remember just feeling like someone was sitting on my chest, like someone had just hit me in the chest, and I was overwhelmed by grief, like actual grief. And I couldn't breathe, and my ears started ringing, and I just sat there. I just started crying, like silently crying. And it was that moment that changed me for the rest of my life. Yeah, there's a lot of really heartbreaking truth, you know, and it's not easy to think about, it's not easy to listen to, but these are the same people who are problem-solving it mm. powerfully. Mm. Um, so why shouldn't we be listening to not just the people who are surviving it, but are actually, like, figuring out how to keep us all alive on this beautiful planet of ours? I'm pivoting a little, but when you and I met the first time, it hasn't been that long, right? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, you know, I have to interview Smali. And you said something like, you know, yeah, if I talk about climate change, I will talk about capitalism. How can we not talk about capitalism on this podcast? <laughs> the irony of capitalism being the driver of climate change is that we all partake in it. Right. We are all active, passive participants. So step one would be acknowledging our role in capitalism, right? Absolutely, yes. But beyond that, how do we do less harm? Since it's, at least in my mind, it is almost impossible to completely escape the system. So how do we put our money where our mouths are? Is, was that a pun, Sadia? <laughs> <laughs> That's good, because I can't do all the heavy lifting here. <laughs> I mean, you might be talking to the wrong person because I don't believe in capitalism at all. I don't believe it works. I don't believe that poverty should exist. I don't believe that there should be certain people at the top of the totem pole. I think it was... It has been designed and evolved to benefit a certain demographic of people. It doesn't work. Right. It literally does not work. And what the climate crisis is, is um, the byproduct of extractive capitalism. Huh. Uh, in my opinion, that has also got to go. Um, but you're right. I mean, we are so embedded in this system. Right. So what does that even look like? Hmm. Uh, I'm sitting in front of you in a neck brace. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, because I managed to sprain my neck this morning. I, I wish it was because of fun, exciting things, but it was literally just probably binging John Oliver late last night, oh, falling wow. asleep in the wrong position. But I uh, do not own a neck brace. I actually posted in my Buy Nothing group, which is uh, ah. a free economy within my neighbourhood, just my neighbourhood borders, um, yeah, which is effectively like a mutual aid system for the neighborhood, which I found after during the pandemic, actually, where people just post things that they don't need anymore or they post things that they actually are in search of. Mm. And so uh, at like seven o'clock this morning when I couldn't move my neck, uh, I posted a picture of that saying, hi, good morning, everybody. Does anyone have a neck brace? And a wonderful woman was like, don't worry, I'm coming to you. I'm coming to meet you. You're going to be able to get into the city to, to meet Sadia for the podcast. <laughs> uh, we'll get you there in time. And she arrived with this very neck, neck brace. I met her on the mm. street en route to you. So these, this is just like one example 
of a system change. You know, the mutual aid is one option. Right. Uh, cooperatives is another beautiful option. That these are ancient practices. You know, mm. um, but really, I think it is a it is a, a consciousness thing. Um, mm. We have to really think like the places that we make money and the places that we spend money are the most political acts we make every day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So can we have some consciousness around those actions? And yes, it's uncomfortable at first. You know, who wants to be guilt tripping all day long? But when you realize there are plenty mm. of alternate options for you, you know, I I have I've only purchased pretty much only purchased secondhand clothing since 1996. Oh, um, wow. yeah. Or like gifted clothes or exchange clothes with people. And I love it. It's so where so much of my creativity comes from, uh. actually. It feels like a very meditative act to do uh. that. So, you know, zero waste is also something that was really challenging for me. But just sort of having consciousness about mm. not accepting plastic bags and things like that, but um, where I'm shopping, like going mm. to the farmer's market where there, things aren't wrapped in plastic and things haven't had to travel from extremely long distances. And you, you're not going to be able to get absolutely everything right. in your world completely carbon neutral without systemic change but we can shift our mentalities and grow our communities with mm. those mentalities and create pretty strong yeah paradigm shift and i think that also needs to happen within the context of individual versus collective because america the way i see it is hyper-individualistic society mm, mm-hmm. that focuses on self more than Absolutely. anybody else. And coming from Pakistan, I find it so hard to get used to the idea. Yeah. And it's taken me so long and I still, I still can't wrap my head around it. I don't know why. But that's something that also plays into this whole mentality of you know, what I am doing versus what all of us are doing. Absolutely. And that is, again, why the cultural piece is, again, why we should be listening to black and brown and indigenous hmm. women and girls, right? Hmm. You have some pretty powerful insights from Pakistan, probably, right. to share with Global North Nations. We still live in this presumption that everything in proximity to white affluent white societies is what's right is what's best is the optimal outcome right. and mothers of invention and within the communities that i function in we are absolutely debunking that absolutely one you know, story f- at a time right? right yeah i mean these those are green you, you know you had access to incredible green spaces right. in pakistan right we're kind of concreting over a lot of ours right now but we're trying to flip that back so where you know where can we gain insights from and people who are still living successfully living within those environments of people we should be being should be educated mm. by right now and for that it's important to look at bipoc communities beyond their trauma and tragedy oh, rejection yeah. right um look at the other stuff the insights they bring you don't have to burden them with reliving their agony Ugh. every time for your consumption, right? Well said. And also, again, like, 
this is kind of why I pushed into the media is because I got so sick and I still feel like I've mm. not been accurately represented in television ever let yeah, alone my yeah. mum let alone my grandmother absolutely let alone your grandmother <laughs> right and because when cultures uh from other places in the world are represented on television or other mainstream media sources it's always yeah this sort of either tokenized or condescended primitivized you know very anthropological anthropological (laughs) look at at our our cultures as opposed to like the incredible wealth of knowledge from many 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 generations uh and again emphasis on indigenous because uh indigenous people now only comprise five percent of the world's population Mm. because of colonization and slavery Mm. but they protect 80% of the planet's biodiversity. 80%. Mm. They are literally keeping us all alive right now. Right. So to ignore that kind of knowledge and insight is an enormous mistake. And any Absolutely. kind of solution that you develop without these kinds of insights are going to be half-baked solutions. And we're going to be back to square one in a year's time or five years' time or ten years' time. And we're talking about the climate crisis mm. we don't have that kind of time available. which is happening right now it's happening to BIPOC communities right now in this moment in real time we we talk a lot about five years ten years but to be honest it's it's happening some people may not feel the impact of it because they are probably privileged yeah so <laughs> they're definitely the privilege is an enormous um block in getting things done Mm. i think there is this huge presumption that we are going to be all right you know in the global north we don't have to experience pain if we don't want to right Right. you just pop a pill you just you know pop to the doctors and everything's done like we are at a time where we really sort of need to adapt around new knowledge like this is it. <laughs> I love it, Molly. I think this was so good with your accent. We were able to tackle so many difficult questions. Even with my accent. Even like with your accent. And we were able to trash capitalism. Yes, anytime. And, you you know. can always talk to me if you want to trash capitalism. But in the end, you're doing such an incredible, important work. Thank you. How do you take care of your peace and energy? Oh, Sadia. Uh, really terribly. <laughs> really terribly. You know, it is something that I thought, you know, we, we wrote our season three in 2020, and obviously a couple of things kicked off in 2020. Mm. Um, we wrote our season around regenerative futures and self-care because we, we really saw the need to hold space for our audience mm. through so many traumatic ex- events. And, you know, I really thought that I got it and understood what self-care meant. But I think it is an eternal sort of work in progress and something that you really do have to keep coming back to. And, you know, like you, I come from a South Asian community, for me, immigrant community. So the idea of rest is like, what are you talking about? (laughs) What are you complaining about? What are you talking? No, get up off your butt and go do some work, you know? So, uh, but that is 
this is also falls off a capitalist mentality where you have yeah. to produce at all times and process is not valued and um you know stopping re- relaxation not is valued. not it's not valued there's there's not even space for it mm. Mm. um so i'm trying really hard to yes start with just slowing down and creating space for myself but there are things that energize me that i'm not quite there yet i'm an artist i'm a painter as well and i haven't made any work in so 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 long I was also a musician haven't made music in a long time these are things that really energize me and really do feel like i'm doing something for my spirit that is not just you know sitting in neutral mm. you know and i mm. think more of that now i'm saying it to you i feel like i'm having to hold myself accountable so more of that definitely is needed is needed but also a powerful thing that i that i do use frequently is amazing conversation with friends who help mm. me unpack a lot of my mad thinking all the time but then going out and dancing in the streets with them i love dancing and i love music and during the pandemic we had all these amazing daytime block parties that showed up all over brooklyn and so usually the summer now is just back to back dancing and that's yeah i love it and i think music and dancing are pretty cathartic yeah I find it so cathartic, right? You're a dancer too? I no. I try <laughs> to, Tamali. I yeah, I'm somebody who would probably just dance in my space, whatever that personal space yeah. is. I, yeah, I'm too it. shy to do it outside of that because <laughs> I'm so bad at it. But I like it. Yeah. I like listening to music. But anyways, in the end, if you were to describe and I can't wait for this answer. If you were to describe America in a Uh-oh. word or a sentence, how would you do that? What? Yes. <laughs> I can't believe you're doing this to me. I mean, in a word, complex for sure. But I do see America doing it, you know, doing hmm. the work. I'm sort of surprising myself saying that out loud, but I I do I, like I think that. there's a lot of there's there's a reason why all this crazy stuff is kicking off right now and that again is because we are entering a paradigm shift and people who don't like change are not happy about it and people who do like change are finding friends holding hands and just yeah. going ahead and jumping and you know I grew up in England uh, which is well, in London which is a beautiful place to be as well but um I do see you know the the problem with England is that um people don't know that empire is a thing they don't, they don't right. you <laughs> I mean, did you see all the celebrations just, yeah. and i was like oh okay. my god i mean i'm throwing this in a podcast the, on that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'm throwing this in at the very end of your pod i'm sorry but um you know i spent like over four, what 16 years in the education system in the uk and mm. you will not hear one word about the british empire about colonization oh, spoken wow. the entire time you're in the education that's system that's messed up it is that's messed so up. disturbing right it's creepy you know i think the mali europe is a lot more racist than america as residents of this country as immigrants we can say stuff but to be honest if i were to pick a place outside pakistan it would be the us Always. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I think 
in it, the the thing about being in the U.S. for me is that people know that slavery is a thing that happened. They might not agree with it and they're going right. to shout about it, but they still know it happened. They know it happened, right? <laughs> it's not like they haven't actually been able to hide that from people. Um, but well, that's what has? Up. I mean, it is. I right? didn't even know that. Yeah, I know. But nobody believes me when oh I say gosh. that here. But it's true. And but what has happened in the UK is that mm. it means that everyone, including people of color, second generation immigrants, I'm talking about myself too, mm. still like there's sort of this very like because it's not talked about, it's presumed it never happened, and so people are sort of just getting along with life, and the mainstream culture which is still really English culture, white yeah. English culture, um, with some fun colour in between, um, is kind of where everybody sits. But even folks of colour don't necessarily know their heritage. They don't know their British history. Like I definitely yeah. did not know about these things until I moved to the States and got taken in by my black and brown friends who were like, oh, girl, we need to fix you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but it is easier to move through the world in the in London, at least, because of lack easier. of knowledge, because um, everyone's just getting along. Everyone's getting along. There's mm. plenty of you know intergenerational inter sorry interracial relationships, and you know it's it's I don't get that kind of aggression or weird microaggressions or anything mm. that doesn't really exist in in London, which is where I grew up, and I live in New mm. York City now. But um, and in, in, in the States, it's very, everyone's wearing that stuff on their sleeves. That's hard. The difference is that in the U, in the US, in, U, in New York, it's actually being dealt with. It's actually right. being unpacked. And so, you know, when COVID happened, when BLM happened, like, I know from the outside, when you're look, looking from the outside into the US, it looks quite scary, but... I felt like New York City was like the safest place hmm. in the world to be. Like I was like here I feel like I can actually do something. Hmm. And there hmm. are communities that are already deep into the work as opposed to in London where it's finally emerging. And a lot of that actually came off the back of the BLM hmm. movement in the US. So I do see, you know, the climate movement being an incredible opportunity to hmm. start addressing all of those issues. Hmm. I love it, Mali. This was so good. Thank you once again for coming. I feel <laughs> really bad. But Do not feel I'm bad. It was a joy. I'm so glad we had this conversation. <laughs> I'm so glad too. It's absolute joy to be here with you. I love this. is a very special uh, subject area for me, so uh, I didn't want to miss it either. What an incredible conversation. I urge all of you, our listeners, to think collectively, move beyond the individual, do some work when it comes to climate action, do work beyond recycling. There's a lot of work that we can do as individuals and collective. Today's episode was written by Yudi Lu. Produced by me, Sadia Khan, and Kinza Muzahir. Our amazing editor is Bronte Cook. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at immigrantly underscore pod, on Instagram at immigrantlypod, and do subscribe to our Patreon. That's how we sustain our podcast. That's how we grow and we bring these amazing, amazing stories 
to all of you. Until next time, take care. Thank you.